You think you should look in on them, please? Not once we've started the experiment. Well, what if something's happened to man hadn't attacked or something there? The experiment requires that we continue. Go on, please. Don't, it, don't the man's health mean anything? Whether the learner likes it or not, we but must... But he might be dead in there. I mean, some people can't take the shock, sir. Please I mean, continue. I don't have to be rude, but I mean, I think you should look in on them. Whether I mean, all you got to do is look at the door. I don't get no answer, no noise. Something I think has happened to the gentleman in there, sir. We must continue. Go on, please. Hi, everybody. My name is Shauna, and this is the American English Podcast. My goal here is to teach you the English spoken in the United States. Through common expressions, pronunciation tips, and interesting cultural snippets or stories, I hope to keep this fun, useful, and interesting. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. We're back today with episode number 103. And this episode is chock full of intermediate to advanced English. As usual in these expression episodes, you'll hear a joke, you'll learn an expression, you'll get to practice your pronunciation, and hear a fun fact related to the history and culture of the United States. In the introduction to today's episode, you heard a snippet taken from footage from the Milgram Experiment a psychology experiment that took place at Yale University in 1961, which was designed to test an individual's responsiveness or obedience to authority. The study was unique for a number of reasons, extremely controversial, and it's well known in the field of psychology. The test itself is shocking, its results about the mind and human behavior even more so. If you haven't heard of the experiment before, or even if you have and want to refresh your memory, stay tuned for the second part of this audio. Let's begin today's lesson. Have you heard of the man who survived the electric chair? It made headlines. Everyone was shocked except him. All right, so that was the joke for today. Did you get it? This one should be pretty easy for you. First off, electric chairs are a method of execution. The humor in this joke comes from the double meaning of the verb to shock. An electric chair uses electricity, so volts to shock someone. A volt is the most basic unit in electricity. Figuratively, when someone is shocked, it means they are surprised. In the joke, everyone was shocked, so everyone was surprised that the man survived in the electric chair. The only one who wasn't shocked was the man. The man was neither surprised nor shocked nor physically harmed. Let's hear the joke one more time. Have you heard of the man who survived the electric chair? It made headlines. Everyone was shocked except him. This is actually fairly disturbing. <laughs> After I read this joke, I thought, well, I'm going to look into the history of the electric chair. And I found out that there actually was one boy, six, a 16-year-old boy, who survived the electric chair in 1947. And he actually got put back in the electric chair at age 18, which is 
incredibly disturbing, but uh, yeah, pertains to this topic. Anyway, let's move on to the expression of the day, which is to push someone's buttons. We'll go through the definitions first. To push is a verb, and it means to exert force on something or someone in order to move them or it away from oneself. Someone is an unknown person. Here we say someone's with an apostrophe S at the end, someone's buttons. So it is possessive, right? These buttons belong to that someone. Buttons is a plural noun, and it has two meanings. You might find a button on a sweater or another garment. It's a small circular piece of plastic or metal that enables two pieces of fabric to be fastened together. Buttons also exist on electrical equipment or devices. In this case, it's a knob or a piece that can be pressed. Press the button, push the button. For example, I pushed the button on my coffee maker and the coffee started brewing. To push someone's buttons as an expression, means to get an immediate, strong emotional reaction from someone. It can be used in sexual contexts to illustrate that by pushing someone's buttons, they are being aroused. But on a daily basis, you'll hear this expression used to express that someone is making another person angry. That boy is pushing her buttons. That boy is making her angry. He's pissing her off. According to Grammarist.com, the term to push someone's buttons emerged in the 1920s in the United States. That's when many home appliances, washing machines, dishwashers, vacuums, refrigerators, most things electrical, became commonplace in American households. Naturally, household chores got easier. With a simple push of a button, a machine would turn on and do work for you. You pushed a button and you saw an immediate reaction. Just like the expression, the person who pushes the other person's buttons provokes an immediate, often negative reaction. Let's imagine some real-life situations where we could use this expression. Example number one. A child is in your kitchen pulling out every single kitchen utensil you own. And before you know it, your floor is covered in forks, spoons, spatulas, measuring cups, etc. After you put everything back in its original place, the child comes back in the kitchen and... Everything is on the floor again. You feel like you're a ticking bomb that is about to explode. You're getting angrier as the kid keeps disobeying. He is pushing your buttons. You are becoming angry. Example number two. During my sophomore year in high school, I was in a math class with four of my school's most well-known class clowns. A class clown is someone who constantly makes other kids laugh, but is incredibly disruptive and usually irritating for a teacher. One day, in particular, these class clowns really pushed my teacher's buttons. 
It was shortly after the movie 300 came out, and Gabe and Alan, who are two of these class clowns, decided they would train to be Spartans. They had outfits, helmets, the whole getup. And during class, they'd do Spartan training when the teacher wasn't looking. They'd pull out weights from their backpacks and lift weights in their chairs. They'd drop to the floor and start doing push-ups. It was absolutely ridiculous to watch, and the teacher would catch them and get very angry. They pushed the teacher's buttons, and on that particular day, they got kicked out of class. Example number three. Imagine you have a very snooty, conceited sister-in-law who thinks she's better than everyone. Naturally, she likes to judge people, the way they look, dress, act, speak. She's just not a very nice person. One year at Christmas, she hosts an extravagant party, and when you walk into the door, she says, is that what you're going to wear? You can't help but think, the night hasn't even started, and she's already pushing my buttons. In other words, I'm already getting angry. So I hope that makes a lot of sense. We see one person usually pushing someone else's buttons. A student pushes a teacher's buttons. A child pushes a parent's buttons. An employee pushes his or her boss's buttons or the other way around. And you'll often hear people say, don't push my buttons. In other words, stop doing what you're doing. You're making me angry. So let's go through some pronunciation exercises. We'll use the sentence, please stop pushing my buttons. Repeat after me, please. Please stop. Please stop pushing. Please stop pushing my buttons. Please stop pushing my buttons. And the conjugation, I push her buttons. You push her buttons. She pushes her buttons. He pushes her buttons. It pushes her buttons. We push her buttons. They push her buttons. Notice how the H in her is hard to hear just because push runs into it. Pusher, pusher. It sounds as if it's one word. You push her buttons. We push her buttons. They push her buttons. That's it for the pronunciation section. Let's move on to the fun fact of the day. World War II ended September 2nd, 1945, but trials for all of those involved in the war continued for years afterwards. In 1961, a trial began for Adolf Eichmann, who was a lieutenant colonel in Nazi Germany. He was charged for war crimes, crime against humanity, genocide. His influence in the war is well known, 
He was in charge of the mass transportation of Jews, both abroad and to concentration camps during World War II, where many, as we know, were exterminated. In these trials, it was common for the accused, prison guards, police, SS officials, what have you, to use what is called the Nuremberg defense, which is basically like saying, I'm not guilty, I was just following orders. I was being obedient to my superior. And in saying so, Adolf Eichmann, just like others, was claiming to be a pawn. He was being used or manipulated by others. In his eyes, his acts were justified because of the system that was in place, and he was doing what he was told to do. Anyone listening is probably thinking, what? No, if you organize a genocide, you're pretty much responsible. Eichmann and others who used the Nuremberg defense raised a very important question. Quote, could it be that Eichmann and his million accomplices in the Holocaust were just following orders? This is a question that was asked by Milgram, a psychologist from New York, in his 1974 book, Obedience to Authority. If so, under what circumstances would normal human beings commit atrocious crimes? Stanley Milgram wanted to find the answers to these questions. Stanley was Jewish. His parents had immigrated to the United States during World War I, and although they'd escaped the atrocities of World War II, many of Stanley's relatives had not. In fact, many of them were survivors of concentration camps. Stanley knew them personally because in his formative years, many had come to stay in New York with him and his family. So Stanley went on to get his Ph.D. in social psychology from Harvard in 1954 and then worked as an assistant professor at the University of Yale. That was in 1960. And by that time, news of the Nuremberg trials was making headlines. In 1961, the story of Adolf Eichmann appeared in the public eye and so did his claim that his World War II involvement was just him being obedient to authority. Stanley, who was deeply interested in science, but also intimately connected to Holocaust survivors, wanted to see if there was a test that could be conducted to evaluate how normal people respond to authority. As all experiments, the test had to be neutral, unbiased, and replicable. He came up with an experiment, which was a bit risque. It involved 40 participants, actors, and an electric chair. Intriguing, right? The test became known as the Milgram experiment. And let's go through it. Firstly, Stanley wanted to find a wide range of participants. So he put an ad in the newspaper looking for male volunteers between the ages of 20 and 50. The ad emphasized that both skilled and unskilled volunteers were invited. So that meant white-collar workers, professionals like businessmen, doctors, lawyers, etc., and blue-collar workers, so plumbers, factory workers, 
barbers, you know, work like that. He offered $4 per hour to participate and 50 cents for gas to arrive. Whatever happened in the experiment, he said, didn't matter. The money was guaranteed. So on the day of the study, two participants would wait in a waiting room for the experimenter. Here's the catch. One participant was real, so maybe a volunteer that read the newspaper ad, and the other, an actor. The actor, participant number two, was involved in the study. He knew what was going on. He was going to act. When the experimenter arrived in his white lab coat, he would explain to the participants that the study was about memory and learning. Uh, we wanted to find out just what effect different people have on each other as teachers and learners and also what effect uh, punishment will have on learning in this situation. He'd give examples, like how effective is it when a parent spanks a child? Then he'd assign one participant to be the teacher and the other the learner. Always, without fail, the actor was the learner and the true volunteer participant was the teacher. The real volunteer, who was now the teacher, would then be led into a room where he could not see the learner. The experimenter in his white lab coat would then give him a list of word pairs that he'd need to teach the learner. The learner would listen and then be tested on what he had learned. For each incorrect answer, the teacher was to punish him by giving him a shock. That's right. The teacher was set up in front of a shock generator. On the front, there was a row of switches, and each switch correspond to a certain amount of voltage, starting at 15 volts and going up to 450 volts. For each incorrect answer the learner gave, the teacher would need to press and release the next switch on the board, increasing each time, 15 volts to 30 volts, 45 volts, and all the way up to 450. Beneath the switches, there were little labels that said slight shock at around 15 volts to extreme intensity shock and danger extreme shock at 450. These labels were visible to the teacher throughout the experiment. The thing is, if the machine had been real, the 450 volts could have killed the participant. That's the thing. The machine wasn't real. I mean, it had absolutely no connection, no shocks, could actually be released. The learner who was acting would pretend he received a shock for getting the answer incorrect. He'd scream, ow! 180 volts. As the volts increased, his acting would become more and more dramatic. He'd yell, get me out of here. I'm not going to answer anymore. Let me out. And if a learner got up to high enough voltage, the actor would pretend he was unconscious or possibly dead. Something's happened to that man in there. You better check in on him, sir. He won't answer me or nothing. Please continue. Go on, please. The experiment was considered complete once the participant administered the 450 volts three times. 
So I have a question for you. Let's say out of hypothetically 100 volunteers, how many do you think would be willing to give 450 volts? Before Stanley started this experiment, he asked 40 psychology professors to predict the results of this experiment. How many people, he wanted to know, would be willing to administer the potentially fatal shock to an individual? The responses among the professors were similar. They believed that only one-tenth of one percent, so essentially nobody, would be willing to inflict that type of pain on someone else. In fact, that's what most people think. So let's see what really happened. Many of the learners throughout the process displayed significant amount of distress while administering the shocks. Some people were sweating and biting their nails. Many of them expressed concern for the other participant, at which point the experimenter was ready with responses. The experimenter might say, please continue, please go on. If the teacher expressed more concern, they might say, the experiment requires that you continue. It is absolutely essential that you continue. You have no other choice. You must go on. Out of the 40 participants, all individuals administered up to 300 volts. 66% of the participants administered the full 450 volts. It's not every day that a psychology experiment makes international headlines. That's not the case for the year the Milgram experiment came out or the years that followed when the experiment was retested and reviewed in countries around the world with different test groups and variables. To date, the test has been conducted around 19 times, and the results remain the same. Between 61 and 66% of individuals around the world would inflict fatal shocks to an innocent human being if put under pressure by a legitimate authority. Milgram explained it like this. A substantial proportion of people do what they are told to do, irrespective of the content of the act and without pangs of conscience, so long as they perceive that the command comes from a legitimate authority. A lot of the interpretation of this is for you to decide, but there is something to be said about our environment. It can be deduced that morally good people act different ways under different circumstances. The experiment shows that we are largely influenced by others, particularly those who are in positions of authority. If in this study, an anonymous experimenter could successfully command adults to subdue a 50-year-old man and force on him painful electric shocks against his protests, one can only wonder what government, with its vastly greater authority and prestige, can command of its subject. Can this study help explain why a catastrophe like the Holocaust happened? Can it help explain other genocides? Many historians and psychologists say, mm, not really. Conclusions drawn up in a lab cannot ever be as authentic as reality. Simple as that. However, others do think Milgram found some pretty disturbing truths in his study. It is a heavy question, though, and once again, it's for you to decide. Well, who was actually pushing the switch? I was. 
But he kept insisting. I told him no, but he said it got to keep going. I told him it's time we stop when we got up to 195, 210 volts. But why didn't you just stop? But why didn't you just stop? That's it for this episode. If this is not a dinner conversation starter, I don't know what is. Uh, Of course, this experiment has had a fair share of criticism. Scientists say that the method of experimentation was unethical to a certain degree. You can't put subjects under stress like that. People were sweating, biting their nails, wanting to leave. You also can't lie to the subjects, which was uh, something that happened in the Milgram experiment. Milgram's response to such comments was always the same. The procedure was absolutely necessary. Each aspect of the experiment was required in order to get accurate results. For example, if he had told the participants that it was an obedience study, then it might have changed their reactions. If you are interested in this topic, I highly recommend looking up the Stanford Prison Experiment. It is an experiment that was conducted by a friend of Stanley Milgram. Fascinating what can happen to people when they are put in positions of authority and when there is that hierarchy in roles. If you're interested in getting the full PDF transcript and MP3 for this episode, a listening comprehension quiz, and transcript reader that will allow you to work on your pronunciation, be sure to sign up to Season 3. You can access the link to that in the show notes or on the website at AmericanEnglishPodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in, and until next time, bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the American English Podcast. Remember, it's my goal here to not only help you improve your listening comprehension, but to show you how to speak like someone from the States. If you want to receive the full transcript for this episode, or you just want to support this podcast, make sure to sign up to premium content on AmericanEnglishPodcast.com. Thanks and hope to see you soon.